Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week... Is there a devil in the detail of Elon Musk's financial dealings? Descriptions like jaw-dropping, inventive, highly combustible come to mind, just as they do when you look at the space rockets. How can the shadow market be brought back into the light? We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And, you know, given that we're talking about very poor countries, you know, this is really quite significant. And why should we be worried about the global dominance of private equity? I hesitate to use the word, but it is this weird form of socialism that is a product of private equity. And that will come with consequences. Now, in a world where growth tends to be low and risk-taking a little out of fashion, there's one entrepreneur who, in a more public way than most, has taken it upon himself to inject a little ambition. Full access to the entire greater solar system. Obviously, Tesla's mission is to accelerate the transition to sustainable energy. If you never want to pay a, a penny again for electricity or fuel... To make hundreds of thousands, ultimately millions of electric cars... So how do we figure out how to how to take you to Mars, thus we could become a truly multi-planet species. That was the voice of Silicon Valley tycoon Elon Musk. As the founder of Tesla and SpaceX, Mr Musk has risen to be one of the most fated and boldest businessmen in America. His ambitions, as we've heard, extend even to colonising Mars. But does he have the cash to back up his claims? He may be making waves, but is he making any money? Patrick Fowles, our US business editor, has been digging deep into the financial gymnastics that sustain Elon Musk's business empire. First of all, Patrick, he certainly doesn't talk like a man in a precarious position. So is everything all well with Musk Inc.? Well, Simon, when you go through the detail of Elon Musk's finances, descriptions like jaw-dropping, inventive, highly combustible come to mind, just as they do when you look at his space rockets. He's in the middle of trying to merge two of his three main businesses, and the valuations that the stock market attached to everything still remain very, very high. But at the same time, those businesses are burning up cash just as quickly as a rocket burns fuel. And none of them, am I right in saying, has made any profits so far? They've periodically made accounting profits in certain periods, but basically all three of them burn cash. And that's Tesla, the car company, SpaceX, which does rockets for commercial customers who, who want satellites and other things stuck into space. And the, and the last one is called Solar City, which is involved in sol- solar panels. I would say I, I myself met Elon Musk when he was still making his first billion back in 2000 when he was at PayPal. And I came away, I have to confess, somewhat dazzled, both by the man's obvious intellectual prowess, but also by his total self-belief. Is that, is that part of it? Is that why, why investors are giving him such high valuation, the man himself? I think it's that. And it's also a track record of coming through adversity. A few years ago, there was a website which ran a page called Tesla Death Watch, waiting for the company to blow up. And, you know, in some respects, he's exceeded expectations. SpaceX has launched these 
pretty cheap rockets and made a commercial business out of it in terms of winning customers. He's managed to deliver the Model S at Tesla, which is a, a widely admired electric car. So part of his ability to keep the plate spinning is based on a track record of, of overcoming adversity. But as you point out, the other part of it is this sort of reality distortion field around him, which allows him to make incredibly aggressive projections for his business and somehow uh, get investors to swallow it. So what's your sense of it, Patrick? Is he going to pull through again? Look, he's got a very, very testing 12 months ahead of him. The businesses are burning several billion dollars of cash. The big car companies are uh, preparing to launch a whole load of new models to compete with Tesla. And he has to ramp up production of his own cars by some five times over the next 24 to 36 months. So based on any normal uh, financial metric and any experience of history, I'm afraid he's doomed to fail and crash and burn. But obviously, based on his own track record and, and sort of messianic self-belief, maybe he'll pull through. Our thanks to Patrick Fowles. But what do you think about Elon Musk? Do you think he deserves his reputation as a genius? Get in touch, tweet us at Economist Radio, or send an email to radioeconomist.com to let us know your thoughts on anything we discuss in today's programme. Now, most of our understanding of the world's economy centres on activity that happens in the open the records, receipts, tax returns and everything in between that churn out the data on which analysis relies. But what about all the informal economic activity across the globe? Workers paid in cash? Businesses that keep no books? Oral agreements rather than official contracts? How important are these transactions? An article by Callum Williams, our Britain economics correspondent, and Stanley Pinyal, our South Asia business and finance correspondent, argues that these shadow economies are still a huge part of the global picture and they would all be better off if they were brought up to date and into the light. Callum called up Stanley in Mumbai to discuss their findings. Hello, Stan. Hi, Callum. So I guess the first thing to think about is when we talk about the informal economy, what exactly uh, do we mean? Yeah, so, so there are many different things that could be described as the informal economy, but our focus is on what might be termed the cash-in-hand economy, economic activity that isn't registered, that isn't taxed, uh, that isn't really on the radar screen of the authorities. So your cash-in-hand builder, for example, it excludes tax havens or, or really complicated tax avoidance uh, schemes. But actually, Callum, I think you found that, give or take, the amount of money that is lost in tax to those tax havens is not that far off what governments lose out by not being able to tax the informal economy, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, part of the problem, I think, and you know, why economists haven't talked about this very much is because definitionally, it's a bit, it's kind of a bit flexible. It's very broad. But yeah, I mean, if you sort of do very back of the envelope calculations of how big these informal sectors are, and then, you know, roughly how much of average GDP is taxed, you can come to some pretty ballpark estimates. And you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And, you know, given that we're talking about very poor countries, you know, this is really quite significant. Actually, one interesting thing is, uh, we were saying what half to three quarters of non-farm employment in emerging markets is informal. In the poorest countries, it represents 30 to 40% of, of economic activity. Do we have a sense of why the informal economy is bigger in poorer countries than it is in rich countries? There's a variety of explanations. One is that the state is simply weaker, so it has less 
control over all aspects of life, really. I mean, some, something that you certainly get in Europe, where you know where you go from rich to poor countries, is that as you get towards poorer countries, places like Greece, this idea called tax morale is very low. So the idea is that people in Greece don't feel that there's any point in paying taxes because public services are very bad, and that's something that you find in lots of poor countries. Technological advancement is that much less in poor countries. So tracking transactions, particularly electronic transactions, is perhaps a bit more difficult. These technological advancements are arriving rapidly in in poorer countries. One way, for example, of relatively low-skilled labour moving into the formal economy is a taxi driver that instead becomes an Uber driver. Whereas it is possible that Uber can be said to be dodging taxes because it uses these very complicated corporate structures, uh, at least all the top line, all the money that the driver makes is is visible, whereas that's clearly not the case in, with taxis. So we're not saying that the informal economy is of no benefit. No, indeed, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you're in a kleptocratic state where the government will simply shake down businesses for bribes and and so on, it makes sense and it's a good thing that people are trading where they can. On the other hand, it's not an optimal arrangement. And in lots of countries, they're now in a situation where they could move um, away from informality, but they're sort of stuck in this bad equilibrium. And it's bad because informal firms fundamentally are very unproductive and that is because they're small they have very poor capital and they can't really get access to finance so they don't expand they don't grow they don't become more productive i suppose the other thing is that we can't simply rely on technological advancement here to move economic activity out of informality and into the formal economy what kind of other things can governments do and what are they doing so we delve a little bit into different strategies Uh, one of them which is quite popular and quite easy to understand is receipt lotteries. So in order for governments to have some kind of visibility as to what's happening in the economy, receipts are are very, very useful and they are uh, the norm in business-to-business transactions, but they're quite rare in business-to-consumer transactions. And to encourage the use of receipts, uh, some of them essentially double up as lottery tickets. And if you have a receipt, you can enter it in a lottery. This is a strategy that's been used in a lot of European countries in the aftermath of the financial crisis that needed to raise funds rapidly. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Callum. Our thanks to Callum Williams and Stanley Pignal. Finally, we take a look at the world of private equity, where big firms like KKR, Blackstone and Carlyle have found ways to weather recent financial storms. They're seen as embodying stability and caution in a world of finance that's very short of both. So why has private equity proved so resilient? And why might we find this disturbing? American finance editor Tom Easton joins me down the line now. Tom... Private equity as an industry is only a few decades old, but how big and important has it grown? Bigger and more important than almost anybody knows. And the reason is that the structure of private equity is by its very nature complex and a little bit shrouded. You have private equity firms on top of funds which own lots and lots of companies. In 1980, the number of firms grew from 14 to 28. Last year, it grew from something like 6,000 to 6,800 This industry is huge and employs loads of people, and it's growing at a time when actually not very much else is. What's driving this? On the top, you know, I think the private equity firms would say they have long-term money. So they have money locked up in their investment funds for a decade, and that gives stable capital. Now, that matters in two different sorts of places. It matters possibly in America, even though there's lots of money and lots of public market structures. But if you go to other places in the world, like Asia, 
Asia is just swimming in capital, but it's not necessarily useful capital. So in China, for example, you have to line up, you have to queue to do a public offering. And then once you do a public offering, you can't do a secondary offering. So you have to raise too much, and that means you're not going to get a very efficient return on the money that you have. So private equity firms charge a lot for capital, but they make capital available when it's useful and profitable to do so. So that's one broad reason. The second reason is that the people who run private equity, for better and for worse, are very active, astute managers. I mean, there are studies that show that when the underlying management of other portfolio companies is not successful, they step in and make changes. So, Tom, you, you make these new masters of the universe sound positively beneficial to the system as a whole. Aren't there downsides to private equity? In many ways, the competition is entirely unfair. They can operate with lots of leverage. That has two components. It puts in an operating risk, you know, if things go poorly, there's a lot of debt payments that have to be made. They also don't really need to pay taxes and because debt payments tend to be tax deductible and profits are taxable. So they're structured not to pay taxes through most of their investment lifespan. That's just a bad thing in that if you try to create a, a company under any other structure, you're starting at a disadvantage. So the state loses out through a loss of taxes, but are there other downsides to private equity ownership? One of the odd consequences of private equity is that ownership is moving from private hands, which is how it works in a public company often where there may be an individual shareholder, into the state's hands. Because often it's either the state itself through a state-backed pension or a sovereign wealth fund or some state advantage entity, and the state could pull away those advantages. And that sort of entity would be a public pension or an endowment or anything that's tax-exempt. And this encourages all the ownership to migrate from private hands to public hands. I hesitate to use the word, but it is this weird form of socialism that is a product of private equity. And that will come with consequences because the owners will demand certain things and they may have to do with public policy and so forth, but it's very different than the private dynamics that, that drive a dynamic capitalist system. And presumably there will also be louder and louder calls to remove some of the advantages that private equity firms have been taking advantage of. Let's just separate those advantages into two categories. Um, one of the advantages that private equity has is the leverage, and that comes from the, uh, not the, from the tax deductibility of interest. A lot of calls to moderate that or eliminate that, though there are questions about what the consequences would be. There's a second tax advantage, which is the so-called carried interest, which allow the general partners not to pay very much tax on their earnings. And that's just grossly unfair and why it's been able to persist is something of a mystery. But there's this other level of tax avoidance, which is in the ownership structure, which is in the state, the sovereign wealth funds, the endowments, the pensions, where the ownership stakes accumulate that hasn't been looked at at all. And that will be much, much more controversial because what it will be saying is the benefits that make these endowments, that make these state funds, that make the direct engagement or the indirect engagement of the state so palpably important in the current economies around the world should be peeled back. And I don't think the state will want to peel it back. I think that we'll address taxes on one hand, you know, the carried interest and the tax deductibility of interest. But on this other hand, where capital pools, we will not address it. I, I don't see any move to do that currently. Tom Easton, thank you very much. Well, that's it for Money Talks this week. Don't forget to tweet or email us your thoughts on today's programme. In London, this is The Economist. Hold up. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.